Hi, this is Wild Nick Brown, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, getting ready to administer you your weekly dose of Focus on Metal. So as promised this week, we are running part two of our two-part celebration of the 30th anniversary of Lynch Mob's debut album, Wicked Sensation. So if you're a new listener just tuning in, then I urge you to go back and listen to last week's show, uh, part one, where we talk with bassist Anthony Esposito. And if you've already heard last week's episode, great. Then you are fully prepped to listen to this week's episode as we talk with producer Max Norman. Talk about a metal producer with a massive and indisputable resume behind him. I mean, his work with Ozzy, with the engineering Blizzard of Oz, but also, uh, you know, producing Diary of a Madman, Speak of the Devil, Bark of the Moon. Uh, just crazy there, right? And then, you know, Y&T with Black Tiger. And it's just kind of even weird to... Listen to this interview with Max and then seeing the uh, the Y&T documentary where he's talking all about working with that band to uh, to do Black Tiger and uh, just all the great stuff they have to say about about Max as well is, is impressive. But of course, you know, Sabotage, you worked with uh, them on Power of the Night and then uh, Lizzie Borden, Visual Lies, Malice, he did License to Kill, Grim Reaper, Rocky to Hell. Uh, besides doing Lynch Mob in 1990, he also did Act 3 by Death Angel, another great one as well. He's worked with Loudness. In fact, uh, he did the Soldier of Fortune album, which we've uh, had a feature on the show about. And, uh, you know, worked with Megadeth as well, with uh, some engineering on Rust in Peace, but also back with them to do Countdown to Extinction, Euthanasia. It's great stuff there. Armored Saint with Delirious Nomad, which, by the way, go out and get yourself a copy of their brand new one that just came out just weeks ago on Metal Blade Records called Punching the Sky. Awesome stuff there. So go ahead. Do yourself a favor. Go get that brand new Armored Saint album. But anyways, where was I? Oh, yeah. No, Max Norman. Just great stuff as well. You know, he worked again with uh, with Anthony Esposito with uh, doing mixing on the Red Dragon Cartel Patina album. And even, you know, back to our my own backyard with my buddy Ethan Broche with uh, his album back from 2016, his self-titled Ethan Broche album as well. Yep, Max was involved in that one as well. In fact, I almost wish that Max had shown up on the record release party. That would have been very cool. So like I said, huge resume behind this guy, very well respected and still doing it to this day, which is pretty awesome as well. But uh, we have him on this week, as I alluded to way at the beginning, to talk about the 1990 debut album from Lynch Mob, Wicked Sensation, which, uh, as you'll find, you've, you heard a little bit from Anthony last week. If you haven't, go back and listen to that. But uh, you will get into it a little bit more with Max this week on the whole Neil Kernan part and all of that as well. But anyways, great talk with Max this week as Richie talks to him. Not only about that, but, of course, you're talking to Max Norman. you got to sneak in some other things in here as well and uh, and pull some other information from his past while you got him on the phone. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Richie as he talks with Max Norman. Hello. Is that Max? Yeah. Hey, Max, it's Richie here for the interview. So I have you on, Max, to talk about Wicked Sensation. That's 30 years old this year. Is that a record you still get asked about a lot? Um, I don't get asked about it that much, really. No, actually. I get asked more about Ozzy and stuff like that and Megadeth like that these days. Hmm. Is that true you turned down the Pantera record to do the Lynch Mob record? That is true, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, that was a, it was a tough choice. Obviously, um, there were some different factors involved. Uh, they didn't really have the management in place at the time, and it was always difficult. At, the, at that, in those years, it was you know always difficult. If you didn't have management, it would be you probably wouldn't do the job because uh, of all the uh, extra factors that having management enabled you with. So that was one of the factors. Um, in fact, they did get management they actually got my manager i suggested that he managed it but uh they wanted to do it down at vinnie's studio i didn't want to do that i mean i really wanted to do them because they were amazing but uh that's just how it shook out really basically oh so how did you get involved with the wicked sensation album i think george called me 
before he spoke to uh, my manager at the time. And I'd known George for a long time, so uh, uh, I guess that's where it came from. I think George, yeah, George asked me. Mm. And was Neil Kernan already involved at that stage, or did you bring him in? Um, no, George brought him in. Uh, George said that he wanted him to do um, the vocals, uh, basically. So he, he thought that uh, Neil would get better performances out of the vocalist than I would. That's what he told me. <laughs> but he thought that sonically I would I was a better choice for, for drums and guitar, etc., etc. Mm. Now, I believe Neil is from England as well, isn't he? So did you know Neil at all? I didn't know him before that, no, but uh, we got on really well. I mean, he's a really nice guy and he's a great producer. And, uh, uh, you know, it's just sort of unfortunate how everything unfolded, really. But, uh, uh, yeah, no, I, I like Neil. I still talk to Neil all the time. So, um, yeah, I had no problem with Neil. And uh, we both get, got, you know, both got along famously, really. Hmm. Now, before you actually started working on that and you were told that Neil was going to be involved, um, did you have any reservations working with Neil? Because like, he'd already produced George and Mick and Dokken. Uh, no, I didn't. No, no. I'm, you know, I was open to uh, having him in there. You know, whatever works. You know, hmm. uh, I, I'm, you know, I don't have any particular ego about it, so it wasn't wasn't that big a deal to me. Hmm. Now I've spoken to many producers, and a lot of them have told me they don't really like to co-produce records. That they like to do it themselves. That it's their vision, and maybe they want to. You know, they, they're the per- people that want to like be in charge. Um, what are your thoughts on co-producing? Well, it all depends on who you're co-producing with, really. I mean, I, I, that's probably the only record I co-produced, um, apart from sort of in-name, a couple of Megadeth ones, you know. But I very rarely actually did. I think that's the only one I did co-produce any, with, with anybody else. Mm. So it wasn't, I didn't really have any, uh, I didn't have an opinion either way. I mean, I know that Neil's done a lot of stuff and that, all his stuff is really good, so I didn't have a problem working with Neil at all. Now, what sort of research do you do on a band before you take the project on? Well, normally it's down to, in those days, it would be down to, uh, obviously, listening to the demos. And, you know, the first thing that you look for is you have to make sure they've got good songs and you have to make sure they have enough songs and, and that the material is good enough. Hmm. And basic, basically, you're looking for two or three you know, out of ten songs that are that are that are going to be really big, you know, that you really like. So that's what you're looking for to start with. And if you do hear those, then obviously, then you're you know you're in a position to say, yeah, okay, we can do this. And and then you have to figure out which of the other songs you're going to use if they if they have enough songs. So that's that's really what makes what makes the decision is uh, is the material first of all. Mm. What about the personalities of the band members? Like, would you ask people beforehand, what are these guys actually like as people? Mm, no, I don't care about that, really. Okay. <laughs> that's, some, that's something you I figure mean, out on the way? Well, yeah, I mean, you, you know, it, it is what it is. You know, I mean, if you asked about personalities, you probably wouldn't do any production at all. <laughs> you know, so... You know, so no, I don't. I don't worry about that because uh, that's that's part of the job. You have to deal with it, and you have to be able to handle people. You know, uh, so I don't care about that. I mean, obviously, you hear stuff, but I don't go out of my way to um, find out. You know, the, the dirty, nasty stuff about people because that that doesn't help you in the long run. It's better, actually, better to go in with no preconceptions. I always thought. Mm, mm. Now, as a producer, you're the guy in charge for drawing up a budget for the record. Um, what 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 do you think is the biggest challenge for you as a producer in getting the budget together? Well, putting the budget together is not that big a deal. It's not very hard. I mean, you have uh, studio time. Uh, you know, uh, you may or may not be responsible for accommodation or and all that kind of stuff. But uh, basically, I you know I would have a template and I would just go through it and fill it out. And um, you would hope that you you got everything done. But I was very organised like that. So you, I would uh, have a whole list of I would draw up during pre-production. I would draw up a list of overdubs. You know, uh, which guitars go where, when we were going to do them. So I would be, uh, I would have everything pretty planned out. So uh, I could always look and see and cross stuff off as you did it. You know, and so you'd be able to understand exactly where you were, whether you're on the right side of time or whether you were running behind. 
so uh, it's, it's really not that difficult. I mean, uh, the only the only problem comes when people get difficult or people don't show up or you don't get what you want. And, you know, that's, you know, uh, in a lot of cases, maybe you don't get what you want, but you get as close as you can get because nothing's perfect. So you get, you know, you get the best you can get and you say, okay, well, we're out, kind of out of time on that one. You know, you can spend as much time as you want to spend. Mm. So you have to you have to say at a certain point, okay, that's you know that's good enough. You know. Max, do you think in general with the bands that you work with, they have any concept of doing a realistic budget when it comes to making a record? Well, again, it depends who they are. I mean, if they've made a lot of records, yeah, they understand they understand what it costs. But all this kind of stuff is uh, it's kind of a moot point now because. The records are so different, and people make them at home. Mm. And I don't think I don't think most, unless you're a really big artist on, on a big label, I don't think anybody's doing budgets anymore. To be honest with you, yeah. Did you ever do a budget and submit it to a label and they turned it down? Uh, no, because you you ask them what they're going to you ask them what they're going to give you. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, the only thing is. If they don't give you enough money, you, 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 then you turn it down because you say, "No, I can't do it for that." Okay, so you know, you're I mean, that's, so that's you're, happened a few times. So you're you're doing the budget up before you even agreed to take on the project. Yeah, well, you have a really good idea of what it's going to cost. You have you have an idea of what of what you're going to charge uh, as far as uh, advances or uh, engineering fees, or and uh, you know how much tape you're going to use. You know. Um, you know, you, you figure out what studio you're going to get into. Uh, so, yes, you usually have a you usually have a really decent idea. Um, so that when they, you know, and in those days you, when you walked in, they didn't really tell you, oh, what's it going to cost. There would be a sort of a tacit agreement. Okay, would you know your budget's a hundred thousand, or it's one hundred fifty thousand, or it's you know whatever it is. If you've got a lower budget, of course, then you would work in a, a lower budget studio. If you've got a higher budget, then you could work in the better studio. So there was some there's some adjustment that you can make, but um, you know uh, that would be amongst the first things that you would say to the label or to the artist and the label. But you know what? what um, what, what sort of budget are we looking at? You know, mm. and that's part that's part and parcel of, of either accepting the gig or not. You know, and I, I was going to do a record at one point for um, Gene Simmons, and his budget was so low. I said, look, I said, Gene, I, I you know can't make the record for that. You know, and yeah. That, so basically, I turned that, that that particular project. I don't remember who the artist was, but I turned that particular project down because it just wasn't enough budget. For me to re- for for me to believe that I could make the right record, so you know, obviously at that point, you just say no. You know, you, you have to get somebody else because I, I I can't do it for that. You know, maybe somebody else can. Mm. Can you remember what the budget was for Wicked Sensation? Well, I remember it ended up being about seven hundred and fifty grand. Um, but basically, uh, at that point, I don't believe that um, I don't believe that we gave them a budget. Uh, Neil and I, I think it was really an open-ended thing. So um, I think we did give them a budget, yeah. But they, I don't think they really cared. They just wanted a really good record. So uh, you know. But then, of course, at the end, they everybody complained about the budget. But um, you know, it, it, it was what it was. So uh, you know, and we had uh, we, we ran into problems with getting vocals on that record, as Anthony probably told you about. So. Uh, you know, we ended up having to move out to um, Arizona to track some more vocals, and then uh, then we went back to um, uh, back to Los Angeles to mix. So it was just generally a big a big expensive project. And, but I think at the time, Electra thought that uh, it, it wasn't really a problem. They would just take it out of the back end of the band and whatever they sell. So you know, and that, that that would be fairly common in that era. You know, if you went over phone, it wouldn't be, you know, you just let people know, you say, look, it's going to cost a bit more, and they go, okay, that's fine. You know, as long as it wasn't outrageous, but uh, obviously Lynch Mob one got a, got a bit outrageous, but uh, I don't think they were that worried about it at the time. They um, they just wanted basically to, uh, to get a great record, and they thought that uh, the combination of everybody and, and the material was great. And so, uh, unfortunately, I think that 
what happened in in hindsight to that was that they, when they went out on tour, it, it it really didn't support the record as well as they thought it would. The, the live show wasn't as good, and they did not get the reaction I think that they wanted to get, despite the, despite it being what I think is a really good record. Mm. Max, are you someone in general that likes to spend a lot of time doing pre-production before you go into the studio? Well, again, it depends on the material. If uh, if the material is all together, um, which, as far as Lynch Mob goes, the material is very together. So uh, it wasn't a huge amount of pre-production that we did. They already kind of had everything done, and they already worked the songs a, a great deal. So uh, in that instance, there wasn't a huge amount of pre-production. There's some rehearsals, stuff like that, that we went through. But uh, in in most cases, yeah, I would uh, I would go through every song with the band uh, in pre-production and uh, figure out what was going on and you know, we do rearrangements and see how see if we can make each song the best it can be. So that's usually what we would have done in, 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 in those days. Yeah, of course, that, we don't do that anymore because people can't afford it. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, but in those days, yeah, I would put in uh, probably eight days or 10 days for pre-production in a rehearsal space. Okay. Go through go go through every song. Go go through all the parts. Uh, go through the drum fills. Go through the tempos. Look at the lyrics. Make sure all the lyrics are in place. Uh, correct any parts that need correcting. Add parts. Remove parts. You know, mm. all that kind of stuff, so that the band has a really good idea of what's, when they go in and they're really well rehearsed and they can go in and just have a good time and make a good track. You know, that's that's really what you're doing in pre-production is attempting to guarantee a performance once they get into the studio. Mm. Now, Max, what made you choose one-on-one to record it in? Like, had, had you done albums there before then? We mixed Rust in Peace at one-on-one. I can't remember if that was before or after. I think that was, was that, I think that was after Lynch Mob. You know, I was looking around for places. I think I, I went to look at the... Um, record plant down in Hollywood and uh, I think it was too expensive and we wanted a big place we wanted to put Mick Brown on a on a big drum riser with some monitoring you know with some high powered monitoring to give him this big sound uh, we wanted a, a big place because George had lots of guitars and we had lots of amps and, and so I looked around for places and uh, when I went there, I, I just thought it was a really suitable place and uh, had plenty of space, had a very big, big round room that we could set everything up in and uh, had an excellent console and uh, a nice, uh, nicely balanced control room. So it just worked out. I mean, there, at that time, there were plenty of really good studios. Uh, so it could have been made in any studio in, in Los Angeles. Well, not any, but any decent studio. Um, mm. But that that happened to be a pretty new place um, as far as the equipment and everything. They had all pretty much all the right stuff, so uh, it just ended up being a good a good choice, you know, for a lot of reasons. Yeah. Now, because you have a big room like that, did you try maybe record Lynch Mob a little bit differently to other projects you'd done? Maybe have the musicians record at the same time all their parts live? Uh, well, we did. Uh, they always do that anyway, but whether you keep the guitars or the bass is really down to, uh, you know, how, how how people want it. So uh, the only thing that we really did differently, uh, don't, we didn't really do it as a live thing, except that we didn't do really any uh, editing on the drums. So really what we were interested in was making sure that the drums were a really good solid track from beginning to end and to get uh, a really big sound we had. Uh, I had TFA Electrosound bring in about uh, 15 kilowatts worth of monitors, uh, big side fills and big wedges, and we just uh, get. Uh, and we had a monitor guy come in who was uh, actually Rod Stewart's main monitor guy, and he came in and balanced up all the monitors for us. So we got this really big, loud sound in there. So that was the only time I've ever done that. So that worked out really well. And he was on a big riser, about a four foot high riser. That helped. Uh, that has extra resonance in it, and that helped with the drum sound. So, but apart from that, um, everything else was fairly uh, normal, legitimate. We go. We, everybody would play as well as they could in order to get a good drum track, and, and then we go back and uh, replace everything 
Um, George would not uh, be happy, probably, with his slide things. He'd like he wants to um, focus down on each part and make sure that each part had the right tonality and each part was played correctly and stuff like that. So, in order to uh, you know, in order to sort of get microscopic about it, uh, we, we redid pretty much everything that that, that George would play. Mm. No, no, Max. And, uh, oh, sorry. Go on. Keep going. I'm so- uh, and and I think that we I think we did the same thing. I'm not I'm not sure with Anthony. I don't think that we kept Anthony's live bass. Um, I think we went back and and redid it. Uh, it it's actually kind of I think those guys were out on the floor. They were out in the studio floor doing the tracks. But then it's much easier and it's much easier to hear and it's much easier to uh, to work on when if the, if the bass player comes and the guitar player come into the control room and you're right there and you can talk to them directly so that's one of the reasons that, that you redo stuff is because you can really get nitpicky at that point and you can get everything correct that you, you know that you want to see you know in the right place hmm. now when i spoke to anthony the other day i asked him about mick brown and he said he's an awesome drummer very very underrated what was your experience tracking drums at mick yeah he's great yeah yeah i i totally concur with um Anthony's testament. I mean, yeah, yeah, he's a marvelous drummer. I mean, he hits very hard, and his timing's really good. Yeah, I have no no complaints about him at all. To me, he's one of the he's one of the greats. Uh, unfortunately, we've lost a bunch of greats recently. We've lost Lenny from Wine Team. We lost uh, we lost Mini Tacker from uh, Loudness, and we lost uh, you know Lee Kerslake last week. And yep. you know, there's a lot of these a lot of these drummers. Unfortunately, no longer with us, John Bonham, of course. But I would put him up right up there with all of these great drummers. I mean, uh, and I think Mick's—I haven't seen Mick for many years, but I think he's retired now. I don't think he's playing anymore. Mm. But uh, yeah, I, I put him on a par with all of these great guys. Yeah, no problem at all. Do you go partying with him at all? Have a few beers? Uh, yeah, we um, we were doing uh, rehearsals out in um, Arizona, so uh, yeah, we'd have a few beers every night and. Uh, uh, it wasn't too much partying going on. George really doesn't drink, so uh, you know maybe we'd have a few beers and um, uh, and then of course in in uh, in LA we would uh, we go right down the street because Tokyo Dell was right there with the uh, sushi place. So yeah, about four doors was about four doors down. I heard it burned down actually last year, which is a real shame. So we'd go over there and have a few sakis and then go back to the studio, stuff like that. But uh, wasn't a huge amount of partying, no. Mm. Max, I want to ask you a little bit about George when, when he tracked these guitars. You already said that he brought a lot of guitars in and a lot of equipment. Did you have to tell him, like, you, you, there's too many guitars here, we're not going to need all of these? Um, no, actually, what we did uh, is quite interesting. I had a programmable equalizer where we could uh, kind of normalize the sound for each guitar because each guitar would have different pickups, have different strings, it would have different body. Uh, so each guitar would have a different uh, level. They would have a different tonality. So uh, what we did, uh, and because George is in the control room, what we would do uh, in order to be able to really control the amount of drive into the amps, we'd bring him into into the console as a preamp. And then out of the console into a programmable amplifier where we could recall settings, and then out to the studio uh, into the amps through some balancing transformers, and then uh, we were then able to uh, switch. Uh, we went through at the beginning of the when we started to do the guitars, or even before that maybe we we went through each guitar and normalised it so he would be able to switch. The sound would be in the ballpark. So you know uh, he he. You know, he'd go, yeah, I'm not digging this guitar here. Let me change guitars. I would just look it up and switch the preset, you know, whichever guitar it was. And um, he, he'd be, you know, it would be close enough that we wouldn't have to sort of worry about, oh, this one's too quiet. This one doesn't sound as good. You know what I mean? If it's not as loud, it doesn't sound as good. Mm-hmm. You know, and if it's duller, it doesn't sound as good. So we wanted to get all that kind of normalized before we started so that he would have the ability to change guitars whenever he wanted. So that's exactly what we did. So we would choose different guitars. He'd say, oh, I'm not, you know, this one's not working for me. I'm going to change this. So I would just switch the, switch the preset and then we'd, you know, we'd, we'd be able to work with those guitars. Uh, without uh, without having too much delay, we'd be um, you know would be pretty quick. So uh, 
that, that was one of the main things that we did there. Mm. Now, was there any room for improvisation when it came to the George's solos, or, or was he super prepared when he came into the studio? Well, uh, I think he was in some cases, and then in other cases, he had his teacher in there, and they were working on solos constantly. So there are some places where uh, he is ad-libbing, if you like, um, but most of the solos were structured out and written, and he would practice them mercilessly, mercilessly, and then we would, uh, you know, we'd, we'd put them down. But um, yeah, most of the guitar solos were written and and very well rehearsed because uh, they're very complicated solos. So yeah. you know, it's it's not like he could just rip those out. He had to he had to work out where to go. They had to get written, and and that's that's true of most people. Same with Akira Tagasaki or Randy Rhodes or you know any any of these. Uh, Brilliant guitar players, you know, it doesn't just come come right out. You know, they're they're always looking for something more than that. You know, but certainly there would be some places where he did ad lib, and I'd go, "Yeah, I like that, George." And he'd go, "Really?" And he'd make a face at me, and I go, "Yeah, man, keep it. It's it's it's, it's really nice. It's got a good feel." He'd be like, "Yeah." Right, you know. Mm. But you know, he was always he was always trying to make get better. And, you know, that's good. That's the way he should be. Mm. Was he open to suggestions from you in the very beginning, or is that something that grew the more trust to who you had working with each other? Uh, I think he was fine. Uh, I never really had a problem with him. Um, you know, uh, if I thought that a certain part wasn't very good, then I would say it. You know, George is a little bit idiosyncratic, as are most guitar players and most musicians. So uh, sometimes he'd, he'd like it, sometimes he wouldn't like it, you know. I know that he used to something or you know, I would. I was always saying maybe, maybe not. You know, but that's really sort of a that's really a, a way of getting people to do something. And say, oh, yeah, well, maybe you could do better than that. You know, huh. and he'd be like, oh, maybe. Huh? Well, can I or can't I? You know, sometimes you get a little bit like that, and I go, yeah, I think you can. But if you can't, that's okay. Max. Uh, so. Uh, did Did you ever get a sense from George that he was super motivated on this record? Um, to make something great after the way Dokken ended. Oh, oh, definitely, yeah. I, I certainly think that. I mm. certainly think he was motivated. Um, I didn't really talk too much about the Dokken stuff. Um, I know that uh, this, I, I think this really was his big kind of shining moment after Dokken. He, and he thought this is going to be, you know, huge. And I think the material was really good. All the songs are really good. And, you know, it was really a much more of a mysterious Less kind of poppy thing. It was more of a more swampy and and had a lot more atmosphere. It wasn't just simple uh, pop songs, which I I thought that he uh, basically his impression. The impression I got from George was that the the Doc and stuff he 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 thought was kind of not so great musically. It was kind of more like just kind of pop songs and, and uh, trying to you know trying to get kind of sort of uh, metal hits, if you like. Hmm. And I think it, I think with the Lynch mom with the Wicked Sensation record, he was much more into uh, into just doing what he wanted and having a great, just a really good record that that didn't follow any of these particular rules, like you know, didn't have to have a poppy chorus and it didn't, have, you know, it didn't particularly have to have you know all this stuff. Although a lot of the, all those, quite a few of those songs did end up a little bit like that, but. Uh, yeah, no, I thought he, I, I thought he really, um, he really wanted to, wanted to make this a, 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 you know, a shining example. Whether he was trying to do something, you know, to show Don or, or you know, or whatever, I, I don't really don't know because I didn't discuss that with him actually. Mm. Now, Bo Hill told me an interesting story when I interviewed him a few years ago. He told me that he had Warren D. Martini in the studio doing a Rat record. And he said that Warren played what he felt was a career-defining solo and Bo didn't have the record button on. And he said he made sure after that that every time Warren played anything in the studio, he recorded it. Were you the same with George where you recorded everything that he did? No, not at all, no. I I wouldn't record anything until he told me he was ready. Okay. You know, uh, uh, because George wasn't... He wasn't in that kind of mode. He wasn't just like ad-libbing stuff and throwing stuff around. He was writing and learning the parts. Uh, apart from, and I don't know if anything, uh, I don't know if we kept anything from the original backing tracks, the original rough guitar, 
it's possible that there was some stuff. I would always keep the rough guitar, but uh, I, I don't think that we really, uh, uh, I don't think we really kept anything like that. It wasn't like Randy where the outros on, on the first two records were actually just Randy ad-libbing. In George's case with Lynch Mob, there really wasn't that much ad-libbing. So he, he was writing stuff and, you know, I go, oh, that was a pretty cool bit, George. And he'd go, yeah, 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 forget about it. So I'm gonna, <laughs> we're, we're, we're redoing it. We're redoing all that stuff. What's up? This is Andy V. Gallion of The Devil in California and Death Angel. And you're listening to Focused on Metal. Turn it up. Yeah. So I'd be, oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, but, but basic, the basic, the basic uh, premise or tenet in production is, is, you know, you keep something until you've got something better, you know. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I'm sure that I was keeping the rough uh, guitars until we got to a point where we'd say, well, there's no point in using these anymore. Maybe they're a little out of tune, maybe a little out of time, then maybe the wrong parts, we've altered some stuff. So, you know, they eventually get aged out, you know. But, you know, but uh, certainly in uh, in almost every, almost well, in every case, I always keep, uh, well, I would always keep the rough stuff. And in the off chance that, um, you know, indeed, as, you know, somebody dies or, you know, gets hit by a bus, you know, uh, as a producer, you're always looking to finish the record. So, you know, you're, you keep everything until you've got something better. Mm. And then once you've got something better, you go, okay, I can lose this now. We don't need it, you know. Mm. Now, Max, you said there was issues with only recording the vocals. Did, did you get a sense that something might happen even in pre-production? Um, no, I didn't actually, no. Um, and uh, because I wasn't responsible for the vocals, I kind of didn't worry about it too much. And because the demos, which they had done on 8-track, were so good, the vocals were really good, I didn't think there was going to be any kind of problem. I, I only uh, ended up, I think, being his own worst enemy. Uh, which I think he's probably the first to admit, you know, but um, that's the problem when you do something so great like that with these demos, and they were really good. I mean, it's like trying to take Led Zeppelin 1 and play it again and make it better, you know. It, it's one of these things where he probably did those takes, you know, first or second take, and just threw them down, and they just had all the atmosphere and, the, and the, you know, and, and all, the, all, all the feel that, that he wanted so I think that and, and also they lived with those demos we all lived with those demos for a couple of months and when they're that good it gets very difficult to to sort of hear something better because you, you kind of go you know even if he records something better you may not perceive it as being better because you're used to the original you know the original thing like if you you watch the movie and then you read the book you don't like the book you read the book, then you watch the movie. You don't like the movie. Hmm. You know, you get you get used to something, and and that's that's another tenet that that you apply in production is if if something's not right, you turn it off, or you get or you just wipe it, hmm. because otherwise, if you listen to it over and over after a couple of days, you're like, ah, oh, yeah, I'm liking that now, and you know, and then you know, at the end of the day, you go, you know what, that that part's not right. We shouldn't have it in there, but now I like it so much that it's very difficult for me to take it out. So. Um, one of the things that you always try and do in production is to remove something. If it's not what you want, get it out of there as quickly as you can and redo it and make it what you want. Because if you leave it for too long, then it's it's going to turn into what you think you want. And, you know, <laughs> that's a bad idea. So I didn't really have any idea about uh, Neil. Neil was going to do all the uh, vocals with Oni. Oni was more happy with Neil. I don't know if he knew him before or whatever, but... Or if he'd listened to George saying, oh, you know, Max is good for sound, but he's not going to get the performance out of you. You need Neil to get the performance, you know, blah, blah, blah. I suppose because of Neil's previous um, interaction with uh, with Don Dockin, maybe. But, uh, so I didn't really care about that. That's fine, you know. And, and vocals are one of the hardest things to do. And uh, so I was, like, quite happy to let uh, Neil go ahead and, and work on the vocals. And... 
we we got all the backing tracks done, everything was good, and we were doing uh, guitars. Then we were doing uh, backing vocals. I think we went over to Rumbo, I think, to do some backing vocals and stuff like that. And, uh, Neil was working somewhere else with Oni on his own, and then he would come in with the with the songs, and we would listen to them. We'd be kind of looking at each other and going, "Hmm, these aren't really kicking our ass," you know. Even George would be saying, "You know," we'd be like, "Hmm." And, you know, even even Neil would be like, yeah, he said, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the deal is, but sort of, I'm not getting, I'm not really getting what I want. And, you know, so it turned out that uh, at the end of the day that Tony wasn't comfortable and he wanted to go back out to Arizona where they had done the demos and um, work on the vocals out there in the studio where he did the demos. So uh, we we all flew out to Arizona and um, Oni had flown out there a couple of days before, and he'd already started working on the vocals with the original engineer that did the eight-track stuff. So when we got there, Neil was very upset about this because uh, he felt that he'd been kind of, you know, uh, lied to, and he, he was very upset with that Oni would start without him, and he felt like kind of just very put out by it. And I didn't really blame him. I thought... I, I kind of felt bad for him. I thought, yeah, it's kind of, you know, but I tried to stay out of it. But then Neil got, you know, he got upset. And then he just said, you know, forget it. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to get out of here. You know? So he basically stopped. At that point, he quit working on the project. Um, he had done some good vocals, like Wicked Sensation, with that vocal was real good, and you know, some of the other ones. And so at this point, we were kind of letting only work with the original guy and I was uh, kind of getting panicky because I didn't have vocals on his on quite a few tracks so I uh, rented the back room at Skip Sailor down in South Central LA and went down there with a the 8-track and a harmonizer and a computer and a bunch of spreadsheets and I took the 8-track vocals which in some cases were uh, half a step out of tune and in at different tempos and i took as many of those vocals as i could off the eight track and transposed them onto the uh, onto our multi-track onto the new takes of the songs uh because i was basically panicking and, and i wanted to have a record regardless yeah and all this time of course i was hoping that only would come up with better takes and and i wouldn't have to worry about it but at the same time i thought well you know i got to do something here because time's getting on you know, we're spending a lot of money and I don't have these vocals. So I spent, uh, I think, a week down there transposing the vocals, pitching them up, pitching them down, putting them in tune, uh, stretching them, squeezing them, massaging them until they fit with the new backing tracks. And I think I only did get a couple more vocals done and I went back out to uh, Arizona and uh, then I worked on with a, with some vocals with him, like River of Love. We wrote out there. I I helped write that the, a lot of that stuff on there. They didn't really know what to do with it, so we kind of sat in there, Oni and I, and we worked out, you know, worked out the chorus and worked out some of the verse melodies. And, uh, so there was a few songs that he did get done uh, after Neil left, and then I ended up using five of the original eight track vocal tracks on the on the actual album so because we listened to them and they just they just sounded he didn't get anything better and so uh, i think o'neill agreed too he, he was like yeah you know what i got that i like the way that that is you know uh, rain i think he wanted to redo rain he didn't he thought he had a better take on rain uh but uh i think he was overruled by george uh, basically, I was saying to George, look, you know, it's up to you, George. But to me, this sounds better than this one, you know. And uh, for the most part, I think George agreed. I think everybody really agreed. So that was the way that it all happened with uh, Oni. And no real hard feelings there. I mean, I think it was a really, really difficult for, job for him to make better vocals than he had done on the A-track. And, and this is this is very often the case. And, um, you know, it, it, it's very often that the first time the guy really hits the song properly, that's maybe the best time he's going to do it. And, and it, you know, uh, there's an old, you know, there's the old saying from uh, Clint Eastwood, where 
the director would say, Clint, let's do another take. And he would just say, was I in focus? And the director would say, look at the DP and say, was he in focus? He would say, yes. And Clint would go, okay, let's move on. You know, mm. he's, a, he's a great believer in first take or second take because you get the honesty and you get the feel and you get all, you get crazy little mistakes and stuff like that. But those mistakes and that kind of feel is what may, used to make albums in the early 70s uh, so good, like the, Led Ze- like the early Led Zeppelin albums. But, you know, a lot of that stuff was just first take. You know, they, they didn't mess around. They didn't do, you know, they didn't do a lot of overdubbing and rehashing. You know, they got it down and, and, and figured it out. You know, I mean, The Who put down... More wizard in one day. They did the whole track. You know, they did the whole thing, and, and you know they didn't spend a lot of time, you know, analyzing stuff. They put it down because they had the excitement, they had the feel, and you know this is what happens. And some and, and the live thing, and I think you were talking about this like somewhat earlier. You know that live thing is it's uh, it's a very di- very difficult thing to recreate. You know, if, unless you have that excitement going on, and of course, once you've done something about ten times, you know, it, it doesn't have the same feel as when you first belt it out. You know, so yeah. Now, up until that point, Max, had you done what you did with the vocals to the same extent on any other record, where you took so much of the demos and put it onto the finished album? Uh, no, um, that was probably one of the first times. But I did that. I don't actually. I don't think I ever really did that with anybody else. Mostly because people did not used to make such good demos, and you would get the demo on a cassette. So obviously, you wouldn't be able to get the vocal off of there. Sometimes, if I was doing pre-production, I would take an eight track to the pre-production, and, and sometimes I would record some of the vocals. But uh, for the most part, no, I didn't really. I don't think I ever really did that with anybody else. But um, at this time, this is before auto-tune, but I was at this point starting to actually tune vocals up. And I, th- I think the first time I did that was with uh, back in 84, was it, or 85 with uh, Dangerous Toys. And I would take the vocal and put it into a computer and tune it by hand and then drop it back onto the, onto the multi-track. Wow, and this—that's not the same as auto tune, and and the stuff that they're using the rat records and all this kind of stuff. So it was very auto tune wasn't available at that point, and uh, so it was very. Uh, it took a lot of time to do, and it would take maybe eight or ten hours to do uh, a whole vocal track. Uh, basically, because at that point I was using uh, Atari ST computers with a digital interface and did not have enough memory uh, in those to take the whole track. So actually I would take it line by line, tune the line, and then and then trigger the line back onto the track. Uh, and that's, it was quite a, a very uh, labor-intensive, uh, but, but it did make a quite a big bit of difference. Death Angel Act 3, for instance, that was all tuned and... Uh, at that, at that at that time, I was using floppy disks to put the to put the vocals on, and then, you know, so this was in the very early stages of uh, of that kind of thing, being able to do that, you know. Yeah, I think the the musicians and the producers, the young musicians and producers, they don't realize the pain you guys went through back then to get a to get an album made. No, um, no, it's it it a lot more uh, it's a lot more effort involved. Um, uh, certainly, um, it's a lot harder to uh, to get everything on tape. Uh, you're working against tape. Tape is uh, not not that forgiving. You got to have a good level, or you got too much tape piss. You can't bounce stuff around. You can only go down about one generation on a multi-track before it really starts to suffer. So you have to get things right, and. You know, it wasn't it wasn't like now where you can where nothing that there's no generation loss now, so you can move stuff around as to your heart's content. And you can move it twenty times, and you can do everything you want. Um, with analog uh, tape, multi-track tape, you've got like about sixty-five dB signal to noise. You got to make sure that you know everything's in really good shape. Or, uh, you've got to have a good tape machine. You got to make sure it's really biased correctly and e- equalization on those. Tape machines that they are aligned correctly, 
so that what comes back is as close as possible to what you want. Uh, you have to uh, you have to pre-emphasize the high end on a lot of stuff because when it comes back from the tape, it's duller. You also have to with tape as it goes past the heads many times, it starts to wear down and stuff starts to get duller and duller and duller. Mm-hmm. So you, after a while, after you make after you made some records, you realize that you've got to make stuff pretty bright when you first start out because by the time you get to mix it and you've run this stuff past the heads maybe a hundred times or 150 times, a lot of that signal is, well, some of that signal is going to be gone and some of the high end is going to be gone. The transients get reduced quite a lot. And uh, so it, it becomes, um, you know, it becomes an issue. So you, you, you have to compensate for that when you record stuff. I remember Randy always used to say that his guitars were too bright. And I'd say, well, just wait till we get to the mix. You'll see what happens. And then when we would mix it, he'd be like, yeah, you know, I, I understand. Mm. You know, because you know, because because the high end of the guitar would get less and less and less, and by the time you get to the mix, and then of course when you're mixing, you're running past the heads many times also. So, you know, that that's one that's one thing. Uh, tape alignment, you know, aligning those multi tracks is a two hour job. You know, you'd have to do that probably almost every day. Certainly, you would do it for every different reel of tape. You know. Uh, so yeah, yeah, a lot of attendant problems, you know, patching, you know, patching in output gear, all this kind of stuff is very manual and a very laborious process. You know? mm. Max, around that time, the CDs were becoming prevalent over vinyl. And that meant then that bands wanted more and more music on a CD, that instead of the normal 10 tracks, 40 minutes, they'd want like an hour of music. How much extra work would that put on you for a project? Would it be a lot of work? Um, no, no. Uh, for the most part, it usually it was kind of out of my hands because that would be the deal between the band and the label, and they would tell them how much what what they were going to do. And I did not actually see so much extra material. Uh, usually, it ended up being an extra what they what they call it the Japanese track. You know, they're doing extra track for Japan mm-hmm. when they when they released stuff in Japan and that became kind of a, you know, almost like a chicken. You know, yeah, well, we've got to do the, you know, the, the extra track for Japan. So it came, normally would end up being 10 tracks or 12 tracks and would end up being pretty close to two sides of vinyl because we still were doing vinyl uh, at the same time. So, and then, uh, you know, yeah, so, it, no, it wasn't that much extra work. I mean, and, and, you know, you would probably end up having to do a few B-sides anyway. So uh, in a lot of cases, the B-sides would end up being the extra, you know, the, the Japanese track or the, the bonus track, you know, Japanese bonus track or, or whatever. So, uh, no, I didn't see too much of that, really. And in a lot of cases, it's kind of you're contractually only obligated to do, you know, so much, you know. So uh, uh, if there was extra stuff to do, then you would, you know, you would get a new contract for that, and you would get, you know, you, you would quote a new uh, budget, and you, you know, you quote a new fee, and uh, you know, new points or whatever. So uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't see that as a as a real uh, as a real problem. No. Mm, I just want to finish up, Max. Um, whose decision was it to get David Toner to make some of the tracks and not you? Um, well, it was kind of mine and. George's, I think, as I recall, because we were taking we taking a long time, and I think the record Electra finally came to us and said, "Look, we want to do this release. You got it. We need it. We need it." You know, and we were just we we got held up obviously with the vocal stuff and getting all that stuff done. So uh, I said, "Look, you know, let's get." Um, you know, let, let's let's have somebody else mix a couple of tracks. You know, um, because you know that might give us a, an extra week. So uh, we had Dave Thone and Mick River of Love, and he also mixed Rain. When they didn't like Rain, uh, Dave's version of Rain, so I ended up mixing remixing that again. Uh, so actually, I think the only one that Dave did was that ended up on the album was uh, River of Love, but. Uh, I think it was mine and George's decision. It was a it wasn't like uh, somebody was saying, "Oh, you know, 
it wasn't like a record label decision or anything. Um, record label did stayed out of all that stuff. It was just that we had a deadline, and that that was the reason to go to somebody else. You know, Max, when is the last time you listened to to this record, or do you even listen to albums you've already done? Well, I don't listen to them that much because you know uh, I know them so well. But um, that one I probably listened to maybe six months ago, maybe. Okay. You know, I listened to you know, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah, probably about six months ago. Probably once or twice a year, I'll listen to that one. It's a great record, so I like uh, I like everything on it, really. Mm. So you know. Now it it wasn't as successful as probably all of you guys hoped. Um, did that surprise you? Um, yeah, it did surprise me. Um, and I know because I got a lot of calls when the record came out. I got a lot of calls from. I got a call from. Um, I think Ron Nevison called me up and said. What it, we thought it was such a great album, and Tom Tom Allen, I think, called me and said, "Dude, you know, really good, you know." So we all thought that um, it was going to go, you know, really go. And uh, Wicked Sensation, the the, the the title track was was on the radio all the time over on KMAC in Los Angeles, and you know, and when you're in LA, you think, oh, you know. You tend to think that's the rest of the world, is you know what's what's on LA radio, and of course it's not, you know. And I think that the problem, the problem, I, w- I went to see the band playing when they first started the tour at uh, maybe the whis- I think it was the whiskey in LA on the strip there, and uh, it, they weren't that good. Uh, Only wasn't very good. He was too far off mic. I couldn't hear what he was singing half the time, and. Uh, you know that's a difficult record to do live. I mean, you got to really rehearse. You got to really, you know. And I'm not, I'm not trying to badmouth the band or George or anything. I mean, I think they they did the best they could, but for some reason it just wasn't coming off live. And I think that I'm not sure what happened to that tour, but I think that a bunch of dates got dropped, and then they cut the tour short, maybe. And and if you don't get out there and do the tour and do the press and do all that stuff, then, you know, you can suffer. And and, and I don't know if there was something to do with uh, Electro because of the way, because the budget was so high that they decided they didn't want to, um, they decided they didn't want to give them enough tour support or whatever. But uh, I did get the sense that possibly Electro had not uh, done us all that they could have. To, to get that to get that going and, and it, maybe there was some sour grapes going on there with Electra I don't know mm-hmm. um, at the end of the album you know that's it I'm like that's it. we get it mastered it gets out and uh, you know I, I move on to something else so you know that's that's out of my hands at that point and you know I got to assume that they're going to try and do the best they can and you know and, and make a great set and everything like that but uh, I went when I saw them at the whiskey. It was a bit of a haphazard gig. It didn't really come off that great to me. And uh, for, for a record that sounds as sonically uh, as good as that one did, you know, it's important that when you when you when you do it live, it's got to sound really good, you know. So yeah. uh, I, I don't know if it was because it was like the first couple of gigs, or just because they, you know, I don't know. So I, I'm not sure what happened, but I think that the the live part of it did not happen as well as it could have done. I don't think they did enough gigs. Um, I don't think maybe they didn't get enough tour support. I don't think they got enough advertising. And it was, yeah, it was a disappointment. I think it ended up, it came out, ended up first initial sales about, ended up about six, seven hundred thousand. So, you know, which in those days, I mean, that sounds huge now, but in those days, that's just barely gold and kind of a disappointment for, you know, spending all that money. So, yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a disappointment, yeah. Final question for me, Max. Um, did anyone even put the feelers out to you to record the Lynch Mob follow-up, or are we in the studio with somebody else, maybe Megadeth or somebody? Uh, no, I, I was never asked after that. Um, I don't know what happened. I think maybe George doesn't like me. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know. You know, and I've seen George since. I actually saw him a couple of years ago with Lynch Mob and only uh, at BB uh, King's right before it closed, just a couple of years ago. Hmm. And actually, they were they were pretty good. I, I, I thought George was real sloppy, unfortunately. And I went backstage afterwards, and um, I you know I said you know you know. 
I don't know, man. I, I heard you do a lot better than this. You know, it's kind of disappointing to hear you, like, not, not being on the case with it, you know. And he was like, oh, you know, whatever, you know. And I, I mean, that's, you know, obviously not, not a great thing to say to him, but I did find it, I, I, I was a bit disappointed in his performance. And actually, Oni was okay. He was pretty good. And um, the, the bass player and drummer, of course, different guys. So uh, they did a real good job. And, uh, you know, it, it was actually a good show. But uh, I have high standards where it's, where George is concerned because I know how good he can be, hmm. and you know when it, when 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 he disappoints me, I let him know. You know, I say, look, you know, you, I know you can do better than that. You know, okay. Uh, but I think that re- I think recently that George is doing quantity over quality. You know, he's putting out so many different albums and he's working with so many different people, and. To me, that's not the right direction for him. He should be making one really great record a year, like Fully Wrath, or you know, and 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 safeguarding his quality as opposed to just making lots and lots of records. And to me, a lot of them are not that great. So you know, that's just my uh, six penny worth. You know what I mean? But you know, um, no, they never asked me again. So that, that happens quite a lot. You know, I mean. Um, I, I never got asked to do another Y&T record either after Black Tiger. I didn't get asked to do another um, Death Angel record. I didn't, I don't, you know, the only people that asked me to do another record were Megadeth and um, Ozzy and uh, not too many other people. So, you know, uh, that, that happens quite a lot. I think for one reason or another, you know, and it, a lot of it is based on sales. You know, if you, if, you know, I think, I think that record company was disappointed in the sales for whatever reason of, of, of Wicked Sensation and so they probably said to George alright let's get somebody else to do this and not spend so much money you know huh. <laughs> so uh, you know that was that yeah I didn't, didn't hear any more and uh, what, what, there was talk of me doing actually did start mixing a video that Lynch Mob did a few years ago uh, they were doing a live video but it was uh, it was really not together and um they wanted to do it in surround sound, and I, I did a couple of tracks, and I said, "Look, guys, this, this you know, you, you this is not going to work. You know, you can't, you know, it, it, it's not good enough." And you know, George didn't like any of his solos, and uh, only was so far off mic that I couldn't get it into the mix without it ruining the mix. To be honest, so you know, there, there's some problems like that. So that got shelved, and. Uh, so I don't know, you know, I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe George is just, I'm not George's favorite guy, maybe, you know. <laughs> okay. Well, well, Max, thanks for giving me so much of your time. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Well, uh, you know, ho- hopefully you can use some of it. I'll use all of it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Well, thanks for calling. I hope you got everything you wanted. I did. Max, thanks for working on all those albums. A lot of them were the soundtrack to my youth. Oh, well, yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad that you were listening, you know, I'm, I, that, that was my whole thing is, uh, I was always glad that people were listening. So thank you. All right, Max. Well, have a, have a good rest of the day and have a nice weekend. All right. You too, brother. All right. Take care of yourself. Yeah, bye. Bye-bye. All right, Metalheads. That will do it for part two of our two-part 30th anniversary of Wicked Sensation episodes. And uh, big thanks to Max Norman for taking so much time to talk to Richie and give us all of his uh, his remembrances of making that landmark album. And if you uh, just catching this one and you didn't get to hear episode 479, which was part one of this, then you have a couple of choices. You can obviously go up to focusonmetal.net, which is our main website. And you can uh, download and stream that off of the episodes page. And if you're there, you can peruse all the other stuff that's up there. Because obviously, if this is episode 480, there is a lot of stuff up there. And when I say 480, that doesn't even include all of the kind of interim special edition ones. We were putting out stuff during the summer and during the uh, real heavy-duty lockdown. We were putting special editions out. We've had some other special editions in the past either, so... I think all told, when you add it all up, we're probably uh, pushing somewhere in the 490s. And also up there, you can, if you miss them first time around, you can get our uh, special projects we did. We did a whole special project on Dio's Strange Highways, where we talked to just about everybody except for the uh, the caterers for the tours. So a whole bunch of episodes up there about that one. We did a big lengthy one on Little Mountain Sound. That was pretty awesome, too. A lot of people really liked that one. And the latest big multi-project that we did 
that uh, actually went over probably about a year and a half of stuff was uh, all about Kerrang! So all that and more available up at FocusOnMetal.net. And if you're getting this from iTunes, and obviously you can just see last week's episode pop on iTunes, um, and there's a big subset of all of that stuff that is available all the time right on iTunes. All right, so anyways, uh, not really sure what's up for next week. A couple of things that are out there. Really, the big deal for next week is trying to be able to hook up with Richie back at the studio, which, of course, with all this pandemic crap, is making it uh, a real pain in the ass to make happen. But uh, we're going to try to do that because we've got some great stuff that actually deserves a discussion to go along with it. So hopefully that will happen for next week. But for this week... That's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, have yourselves a great metal week. Be safe out there. Do yourself a favor. Go out and buy that brand new Armored Saint album, Punching the Sky. Good stuff. Available on Metal Blade. Maybe if you're lucky, you're going to get the purple vinyl, but I don't think so because I think I actually got one of the last copies of that puppy. But anyways, go out and buy that thing. You won't regret it. And as always, every single day, we want you to focus on metal. Everything else is insignificant. You're still here? It's over. Go home.